Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is a young woman whose son has a rare genetic condition. Ever since he was born, she has been an advocate for him and for many others. As she says about advocacy, You don't have to be like any other advocate and you're not less than another one because you're not doing this or that or have this shiny thing above you. Like it matters what you're doing no matter what. My guest on the podcast today is Effie Parks. Effie, you're very welcome to the show. I'm so thrilled to be speaking with you today. And I want to start with your backstory. Now, I know that you're from Montana and you described it as beautiful Montana. For those of us who are not from the United States, why is Montana so beautiful? Tell us about it. Oh my gosh. Uh, Something people say about Montana is it's big sky country and it is just that. And you can't really comprehend what that means until you see it for yourself. Like, It is just, it is the last best place. (laughs) It's so beautiful, you know, and we're up against Glacier Park and Banff and there's Yellowstone and it's just the biggest state ever. And there's so many different types of landscape there. And it's just, you know, it's not very populated. It's still so untouched in so many places. It's just, it's one of my favorite places. That's lovely. I think I'm booking my flight right now. (laughs) It's gorgeous. You have to see it. I definitely do. I also know that you're from an enormous family. There were 13 of you. Correct. So clearly you did your bit to increase the population of Montana, right? (laughs) Yeah, maybe what else is there to do there? I don't know. Uh, Yes, I have 12 brothers and sisters. I have eight sisters and four brothers, all of whom I can't imagine not having. It doesn't seem like that big of a family when you're in it. And they're all just so special. And I'm, I'm so glad that they're mine. Having a big family means you must have wanted a big family of your own, or or was that ever in the plans for Effie in the the future? You know, I don't think any normal person at this point could ever have 13 kids again like my parents did for many reasons, right? But yeah, I mean, I always wanted to be a mother. I always wanted to have siblings for my kids. I wanted them to have that joy and that companionship that I had. And yeah, getting around a table with just your your family is such a magical thing to be able to do and to call upon them when you need them. You can't replace that. And there's really no other relationship just like it, you know, like having someone who knows exactly where you came from. It's just, it's really special. It does sound special. So tell us what happened as you grew up. Did you, re- you didn't stay in Montana after a certain age. So where did you go and what happened? I moved to Seattle, Washington, which is about nine hours away from where I grew up. You know, change of scenery and all of those things, leaving the nest. So when I moved here, I eventually met my now husband, Casey, via the internet, like we all meet nowadays. You know, if I had met him sooner, there would be a couple more kids on the horizon. But I met him when I was about 30 and, you know, I just knew he was the one right away and Man, I'm so lucky to have him. And I'm so glad that whatever it was that brought me to Washington led me to him. We got married and we were so excited. And, you know, we tried to have a baby right away, which turned out to happen also. And we had this little boy and we named him Ford. And he was so little and so beautiful. And unfortunately, right away, we started having trouble feeding him. Like we couldn't get Ford to eat 
couple ounces of milk for at least an hour or two, sometimes three, you know, and we were just constantly trying to get milk down him and it, he couldn't latch on, he couldn't swallow, milk would just kind of spill out of his mouth. He wasn't gaining weight. So right away we were really scared because we, we knew something was wrong. We didn't have a lot of support from our medical professionals in, the t- in that time. We were brushed off a lot as worried parents and first-time parents and that we must be doing it wrong or he'll catch up. And fortunately, after about four months, we were listened to and our son was ultimately admitted into the hospital with failure to thrive. This is a common story for parents who've got a child with a rare condition the diagnosis, it's almost like a tube light. It kind of flickers before it finally, finally lights up and somebody says, there's something not quite right with your child. Now, what I'm really interested in is what was that experience like in the, those first four months of his life? You were constantly being told he'll catch up, this will happen, that will happen. But you as a mom had a sense that things were not right. It was really scary. It was odd too, because I didn't necessarily know that I could question my doctors and push harder. And I think back to those days now and I'm just like, man, why don't we know that we can do that? Why are we always trying to just be polite and I don't know, do what we're told in a way? You know, I didn't necessarily know that I had to fight for my kid as hard as I have now had to fight for him for five years. I didn't know that I could question my doctors. I didn't know that I could just leave and find a new one. So I learned a lot of lessons from those four months. I was also unsure. And then I felt guilty because like, why didn't I know that I could do that? Why didn't I push harder and get an answer sooner? I mean, four months is nothing to make something happen in the scheme of things in rare disease. Sometimes it takes people years to finally get listened to, but it was, it was really traumatic. It was really traumatic being brushed aside and being told that it was I was just making mistakes or I was taking things and blowing them out of proportion. It was really confusing. And I'm glad it only took four months because I learned a lot from that. You're right. Four months is, in the scheme of things, not a long time because, as you say, sometimes a diagnosis can take several years before somebody really recognizes that there's something that needs particular attention. Nevertheless, I agree with you. I think we don't question when we should. We don't take agency when we should. And then there's all the self-blame, isn't there? You feel that you failed somehow because you should have known better. Were those feelings also somehow in the background after the diagnosis was made? Did you feel somehow that you should have been more aggressive about things? No, I, you know, I never really harbored that from those moments, but I did take it and made sure that I never made those mistakes again. Those four months were really eye-opening to me to the medical field in general. You know, I hadn't really had any experience with it. I'm healthy. Everyone's healthy. Just never had to advocate for myself in a setting like that or for anyone else for that matter. And it was a wake-up call and it served me well, you know, not just for doctor's appointments, but for school and for government stuff, for so many things for my son at this point. It really gave me the grit that I needed and it gave me the understanding that I'm also in the driver's seat and I am at the table just as much as anyone else is here to help my son. You absolutely are in the driver's seat. And I think that's a message that we would love to underline 
in this conversation that you are in the driver's seat. And at the end of the day, you are the one that knows best. And what we hope is that you will get people working alongside you as part of your team in resolving the issue, whatever the issue is, if there are others who are in a similar position. So tell us what happened next. After we were admitted for failure to thrive, he stayed there for about a week. And what that did was jumpstart things, right? Everyone started paying attention. All of the specialists were coming to our room for a week, going over all the things. You know, it got us a referral to genetics, to genetics, who then was like, yes, there's definitely something going on. I think it's this, but let's check. So it got us in the door and it got us on the map, right? And it piqued someone's interest, thank goodness, a geneticist who then ordered a whole exome sequencing test. We waited for that for about, I don't know, it was longer than it probably usually takes. We got his diagnosis when he was 16 months old. So we got it the following year. And, you know, that was just kind of another one of those moments. The doctor said, well, there's an answer. It's not the one I was, I thought it was, but we have one. And she said, your son has CTNNB1. He's one of 30 patients in the world. The only thing that is written about this in the literature is that some of the kids can say several words and some of the kids can take several steps. And that's all I know. And you know, that is a super, super traumatic day that's seared into your brain, especially when there's no answers. And it's nothing I ever expected. Like I knew we were on this path to like, get a genetic test and to maybe find answers, but I never really thought I was going to get an answer like that. You just don't really wrap your head around it, I don't think, that something like that's going to happen to your kid. Sadly, if it happened, but you being you, how did you then go from there to the incredibly bubbly, vivacious person you are now? How did you manage that journey? Well, Thank goodness I have always been this person (laughs) because I'm not sure how far along I would have got without it. And also desperation and isolation and really not being happy with not knowing and not feeling like I had a community and not feeling like I had any connection to anyone else really that was in my life before. I was so separate. You know, the way my son was developing was so different than everyone else's. And the longer that time went on and the (laughs) the older he got, the bigger those gaps became. And like, I just did not like feeling like that. (laughs) And I knew I had to find my people because answering the supermarket questions like all the time just like was not working for me. So I spent a lot of time in the car, as you know, going to the doctor's appointments. You live in your car a lot. And I was searching for anything I could fill my brain with while I was doing that. And I found a few podcasts. Five years ago, really almost nothing. But what I did find was like everything I needed, the stories and the people that were sharing this, I finally felt seen. And I finally felt like, oh my gosh, there's someone else who feels like this. There's someone else who's going through this just like me. And they're living beyond their circumstances and they have hope and they're happy and they're making the most of things and they're trying to find cures and they're raising money and they're writing about it and talking about it. And I was just lit. You know, I was so inspired to be a part of that conversation and to contribute in a way to make the next parent's journey not as dark and bumpy as I felt like mine was. Because when someone did that for me and not even knowing it because it came in the form of a podcast, that was a lifeline. And I ran out of that content 
like I said, there wasn't a lot. And I just knew it was something I had to do. Again, another very typical story from patients who support families who've lived with rare disease or living with rare disease, that what makes a difference is connecting with other people. So when you're talking to folk who've got rare disease, what is your message to them? Do you say that the place to go is online to find the support or is there some other route they can take which will circumvent this long journey that you took towards some sort of an answer? You know, it really depends on the reach from someone. I get, I mean, same as you probably, I get so many emails and so many messages about it. People who found the podcast and thank you. But a lot of it is really connecting them to the other people in whatever way they need. Maybe a person that comes to me is really interested in helping to raise money for a cure. And so I connect them with this one woman who's the queen of fundraising, who raised $4 million for her kid. Or maybe it's someone who's N of one and they need to start a foundation. So I connect them to this king I know who literally shares all of his homework and the roadmap on how to get it done as soon as possible. Or maybe it's someone who's interested in starting a blog, or maybe they just want to start talking about it and they want to be a guest. Like It really depends. And I love that about it. I love that about advocacy in general, that like there's so many different kinds and there's so many different people who show up with the gifts that they have. And I just really want people to know that they're all so important and you don't have to be like any other advocate and you're not less than another one because you're not doing this or that or have this shiny thing above you. Like It matters what you're doing no matter what. You could be helping that mom who's washing your dishes crying and literally change everything about her emotional state by just talking. Like You have no idea the reach that you have and what you can put out into the world if you're finally inspired or motivated or in a place to do it, it changes everything. And I really believe that it's a form of service. And I like looking at it like that for myself because who doesn't want to do good? Who doesn't, I mean, who doesn't feel good when you're putting something out there with all of this intention and hope that it just does something for someone? And yet you and I both know that for somebody who's born with a rare condition today, Things are going to be very much the same as they were for you, hopefully a little bit better, but not far short of the kind of experience that you're experiencing. Or even somebody who doesn't particularly have a rare condition. Often we find this happening a lot in medicine that it takes a while before the penny drops and someone says, aha, this is what is the matter. This is the the way that we can make your life a little bit easier. So as you scan the horizon of medicine, and you have a unique perspective because you've dealt with the rarest of the rare conditions, as you scan the horizon, where do you see the hope for the future in terms of people in their experience of healthcare generally? It's really exciting right now, all around, right? Like the the pace at which science is moving right now is mind-blowing. I remember when Ford was born, when we got this diagnosis and what we were told, and then what's happening now for him. Something they said would, one, never happen, or two, not in his lifetime. Not true. It's happening right now. So I think that the hope for our kids or anyone living with a rare chronic illness is so exciting right now. 
that part is amazing. I think that advocates, caregivers, and patients, I think their voice is so important. And I think that it's actually being taken into really high regard now, more so, at least a little more every day. And I think that's so important too, right? Because who are the experts? We are also the experts in the day-to-day of what we're living with or what our kids are living with. And it's not just being like, oh, that's nice parent that you, know, you Googled something or you're telling me what you think. It's like, oh, really? I need, to, I need to know that. That's important. Let's figure out a way. So I think that voice that's being brought into the care circle from us as parents or advocates is so cool and it's so important. And it really only moves all of us together. I think that's exciting. I think the internet and social media and the fact that people have realized how much they can actually get done online anyways is exciting. I think it's connecting so many people who didn't have access in so many ways. I think that even just the people in you know underserved areas or populations that can just get in somehow online to a community that they can ask questions to because maybe they don't have access to certain care or have anyone helping them advocate. Someone that they hear on a podcast or whatever go, well, did you think about this? This is what we do. No, of course they didn't because they don't know. There's just so much information at your fingertips and there's so many people who have already done this for you. And what's really amazing about all these people is that all they want to do is make your future easier. And so everyone is here to help and everyone's here to collaborate. And that's exciting. Nobody's hiding away their prized knowledge and like what they did and keeping it as a trophy. Everyone is trying to help everyone because we are in this together. How cliche that might sound. Like, That disease, getting gene therapy or getting a drug helps my disease. It's getting the science going. It's getting all of us on the map. And it all matters. I I love the team idea that's really coming to life. And it's beautiful. Things aren't being hidden away in silos as much anymore. I mean, they are, but people are really banging on them and making noise. So as you were talking, I'm ticking off the boxes. Science, tick. Advocate's voice, (laughs) tick. Teamwork, tick. Technology and connection, tick. The tyranny of distance is becoming less of an issue and the democratization of science tick. There's one other thing that we need to talk about, and that's tomorrow's doctors. You've experienced yesterday's doctors and today's doctors. What do you say to the doctors of tomorrow? How do we respond better? How do we make this experience, even when we don't know what's wrong with somebody, how do we make the experience of healthcare? more positive? Really showing up as a human being in the room. You know, like we automatically respect you. We automatically know the knowledge that you carry and we value it so much. But really coming to the table and looking at us and really trying to understand and coming from a place of empathy and just making us feel seen and heard right away would change everything. (laughs) I mean, The emotional state that can put a parent in when you feel brushed off or when you feel like they don't care about your kid or when you feel like they're too busy for you, it can be really drastic in the way that that parent or patient goes home and deals with things and maybe loses hope and doesn't fight at all to find any answers after that. So simple, I guess, just like as simple as you can get is just really paying attention and showing up and making the person feel seen and heard, I think would really make a huge difference. Okay, I'll put you in the doctor's seat. 
what's your diagnosis here? Why isn't that happening more consistently today? What do you notice about the healthcare providers that makes you think they're not showing up? I think they're busy. I think they're so busy and I don't think they get enough time with each patient. And I don't know how to fix that. I also I also feel like the connections are broken just in the system of them communicating with each other and coming to the room without any information when they should be coming to the room with it. But like that doctor doesn't talk to that doctor or doesn't have access to that computer program. Like I know they don't get all of that as magically in their hands as we think they do. And that's that's really too bad. And that doesn't make sense to me. I don't know how we fix that other than to just really try. I think coordinated care is something that should just be. <laughs> and I don't know how we make more time available for doctors. I don't know how to fix it exactly. I'm not so sure, Effie, that that's true. And I'll tell you why. Because 15 minutes is an awfully long time when you're trying to connect with somebody. If you try an experiment where you just sit there and you point your body in the direction of the person who sat in front of you and you say not very much, but you listen intently to what they're saying, it's going to take just a minute or two before that person feels that you are listening to them, really listening to them. And I just wonder whether you've had that experience. Have you had the experience where somebody puts their pen down, they turns away from their computer and actually looks at you, as opposed to asking you question after question, typing stuff in and waiting for the computer to give them an answer? Has that been your experience? You're nodding. Have, have, you, have you been there? I've, I have had that experience and I'll never forget it. Dr. Lisa Herzig, what an angel from heaven. She was the first one who actually did make me feel like that. Like she cared and she was interested and she didn't know about CT and NB1, but she didn't just ignore the fact that she didn't know and wasn't interested. She really dug deep and was trying to figure out how to best help my son. And she went out of her way after our appointment to connect me with certain people and different places in the hospital to help me get things done. And nobody had done that. Nobody had done that before. And what she did in those this 15 minutes, it was magical. And it made my appointment feel like an hour. And everything that she did afterwards really impacted the quality of care I got after. And I am so grateful to her for that. But you know, I also had to like come into that appointment. I didn't have to, but like, I was almost completely broken at that appointment. Like I had, I thought it was just going to be another regular, uh huh, tick in the box, like you said, never look up from your computer. And I don't know if she saw it on my face. I don't know if she's just an angel, <laughs> but yeah, that made a huge difference and I'll never forget it. She may be an angel, but I suspect that she's as human as you and I. There's something very special about how she's interacted with you. I see it on your face now as you recall that interaction with her. And that, I think, is where we're going with this conversation in that how do we replicate that? Can it be taught or is it innate? What do you think? As someone who has zero troubles connecting with someone, whether it's in person or on audio, I would think, yes, you should just know how to do that. But 
I'm not necessarily sure that you do just know how to do that. I mean, I think a lot of things come into play there about who you are and where you come from and how you were raised and if you were listened to. But absolutely, it can be taught. Absolutely, it can be taught. There's no question in my mind that human beings can be compassionate and be empathetic and be sympathetic and all of the things if they really want to be and if they're really listening and if they have the intention on helping someone. And I don't know what what we need to do to make that happen for doctors. And I don't and I don't want this to come across that I think all doctors are like that because I don't believe that at all either. But yes, I do believe it can be taught. Yes, I agree. And I also agree that not all doctors are like that. I know many, many, many wonderful, wonderful clinicians who do a wonderful job. But we're also very interested in what you think, because you are, at the end of the day, the recipient of the care that we have inside us. Now, question is, are we selecting the right people to be doctors? Because we select people for intellectual capacity, largely. Some very clever people, type A personalities. Is there some other quality that we should be looking at? And do you think that it's time for the patient advocates to be in the selection panel for tomorrow's doctors? Is that an option? (laughs) Oh my gosh. You know, I think maybe figuring out ways to make sure that you're getting good communicators. I think that's, that's a big thing. Being able to being able to sit with someone, being able to explain something really difficult to them, being able to help them make decisions. Yeah. I don't know if we should be allowed to decide on who should become doctors or not, but that's a really interesting thought and definitely some surveys should go out about that. Why not? Who better qualified than the person who says nobody knew the answer to the problem and that wasn't what I that wasn't what made a difference because in the end we got the diagnosis because technology allowed us to make the diagnosis. But the journey for those first four months and maybe for many years after that was made easier by somebody who pointed their elbows and knees at me, put their pen down, turned away from the computer and looked me in the eye and could see that I was distressed and made it their business to fix my problem. Isn't that what you're talking about? Yes. <laughs> You know, and maybe it's simple like having a patient advocate in the room every time. You know, maybe it's like one of those child life on call specialists that's there to help you support whatever, you know, your kid while you're listening. Because I know that's a big problem too, right? Like I have to bring my kid. He's non mobile. He has really stiff limbs. And like I have to contain him. But then I'm also getting this really troublesome, you know, news or care plan and like, I'm here, but I'm not here. And so I can't effectively ask questions and listen. And what about having someone else in the room that can really help make sure that you understand it or make sure that you do ask the questions that you need to ask before you leave? Maybe it's just a supplement to the doctor in itself. Maybe it is. Maybe the technology can assist as well. Perhaps we will be recording the conversation and we'll be able to replay it or we'll be able to do it so that We don't necessarily have to be in the room with the person who we're trying to engage with because we've got better options for childcare when we are in our native environment. Somebody else can be in another room with the child while you're trying to talk to the person who seems to have the answers. I'm not sure. But in the end, it's really about making sure that the healthcare organization, whatever that is, 
responds to your needs because it's going to have to respond to your needs. You are a voice that can no longer be ignored. You are a voice, quite rightly, that is crying out for a seat at the table when it comes to your own well-being and your family's well-being. Yeah, and another thing that I've felt a lot is that they don't care. And not because they don't care as humans, but like, why do they want to figure out what CT and NB1 is and how to help me when they think that there's no hope and I should just go home and love my kid and give him all the therapies? Like, that's not interesting to them, you know? Especially if it's not maybe something that we know that is really progressive and has more of a sense of urgency. Like, at this point, I feel like a lot of my appointments, I have felt like, oh, well, he's just, he's disabled and he has a neurological disorder and, we can't really help him. So like, it's almost like as a, as a rare disease parent, like what are they going to do about it is kind of how I feel like they feel. But in their heart, I doubt they want to live in a world where we decide who lives and who doesn't live and who gets care and who doesn't care. Anyone who's been involved with UFE would realize that it would be, it's a joy to be part of your life and it's a joy to be part of the family that you're raising You bring so much into the world and you will make such a difference and you are making such a difference to the way that we care for you and everyone else who needs healthcare. Thank you so much for being part of this wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity to be on your show and thank you for your show. I love the conversations you have on here. I'm thankful. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the journal of health